They know they've got to wait until the offering plate goes by. Maybe we need to start the offering plate in the back and have it work forward someday and just change it up a little bit. <laughs> so again, youth, no youth group this Wednesday. Sounds like there's a ski trip in the mix, and so they're going to be heading off to do that this Wednesday. And I do want to say, if there are youth that have received Christ as their Savior, you don't have to wait to be an adult before you get baptized. Youth, kids, they've made that decision. That's open to them as well. And so, again, we'll be having that meeting next next Sunday after service. So, Well, I hope you've been enjoying our 52 greatest stories of the Bible. Um, it's a weekly devotional. Hope you've been enjoying that. Um, also, um, tying in our scripture reading plan along with that. I hope you've been doing that as well. And sometimes life gets busy, and it's like, gosh, I have to choose this or that. And if that's where you're at in your devotional time, you've got to choose whether you're reading the 52 greatest stories or whether you're choosing scripture. Please know, choose scripture. Okay? It's a great resource and all of that stuff, but Put scripture as obviously first and foremost, and so encourage you to, to do that. Well, how many of you here remember the Federal Cigarette Labeling and Advertising Act of 1965? Okay, a few of you. A few of us are thinking, no, sorry, that was well before my time. But in that, it required that a warning be put in small print on one of the side panels of each cigarette package. Then the warning read, caution. Cigarette smoking may be hazardous to your health. And then in 1967, which was a very good year, by the way, but in 1967, the Federal Trade Commission issued its first report to Congress recommending that the warning label be changed to, warning, cigarette smoking is dangerous to health and may cause death from cancer and other diseases. And then two years later, Congress passed the Public Health Cigarette Smoking Act, which prohibited cigarette advertising on television and radio and required that each cigarette package contain the label, warning, the Surgeon General has determined that cigarette smoking is dangerous to your health. Apparently they thought if they got some authority behind it with the Surgeon General, it'd have more of an impact. And then in 1981, the Federal Trade Commission issued a report to Congress that concluded health warning labels, get this, had little effect on public knowledge and attitudes about smoking. As a result of that report, subsequent acts were passed, but it seems to me that we are not very good about heeding warnings. It's an age-old problem. And so this morning, as we continue our 52 Greatest Stories series, the title of today's message is Warning. Warning. And so we're going to spend our time together this morning. My husband's cluing me. Sure. <laughs> I can do that. I think maybe a few too many little fingers back here. (laughs) 
Okay, a little intermission here. And I can't talk and do at the same time. I'm not that multitasking. Almost there. Yeah, I always say that the scriptures are going to be up on the screen, but... Yep. Sorry about that. All right, so where was I? <laughs> All right, so... Our time this morning, now that we have the screens uh, or slides up on the screen, is we're going to take a look at this first warning that was issued to all of humanity. This, this, well, it wasn't issued all to humanity, but the first issue or warning that was issued to humanity. And we're going to look at why it was defied, why it was issued, and of course the results of of the defiance. And then we're going to finish it up with the okay now. What do we do with it? And so you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to primarily be there this morning if you have your Bibles. And yes, we will have the scriptures up on the screen as well. And so we're going to dive into the word. But before we do, um, let's bow our heads and, and just pray as we get into God's word. God, we thank you so much for your word. We know that you have instruction for us in it, and it never returns void. And so, Lord, we are anticipating that you're going to do something through your word this morning that's going to transform our minds and how we do this life on this earth. And so, God, we just thank you for the power that is in your word, and we give you the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, Genesis chapter 3, starting with verse 1, starts out with the serpent. And everybody knows who the serpent is, right? <laughs> Satan, the devil, our enemy, a created being, an angel that rebelled against God. And if you read into scripture further on, find out that he also persuaded, you know, a third of the angels to, to follow him. So it was just, yeah, not a good thing. So here's who we're talking about here when we say the serpent. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it if you do, you will die. Wait, let's fact check this, because that's what you do this day and age. You fact check it. Is that really what God said? Looking back into the archives to when God gave instructions to Adam in the garden, what did God say? Genesis 2, chapter 16, or 2 verses 16 and 17 tell us. He says, but the Lord God warned him. You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure 
to die. Now, a red flag should have been going off in Eve's head here. Even though she hadn't yet been created when Adam had received that first warning from God, this was important. And I'm convinced that God would have made sure that Eve was aware of this warning as well. So we don't know why it is that that Eve didn't recall what it was exactly that God said. We don't know what led her to misquote God, adding that they weren't even supposed to touch it, because that's not what God said. Did she not want to remember it? We don't know. But the tempter, disguised as the serpent, doesn't miss a beat in moving on with his agenda. Because in verse 4, he says, you won't die, flat out lie, you won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. So just like that, the tempter transitioned into the liar. But he didn't give Eve much time to process before he moved on to his next tactic, continuing to change it up so she can't get a footing in on truth in her mind. And he moves on to suggest that she should doubt God's motives, to question God's character. As he says in verse 5, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. And you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. See, Satan is implying here to to Eve that God doesn't have their best interest at heart. Hasn't God created you in his image? You can just kind of hear him whispering these questions to Eve. Doesn't he want you to become like him? Yet he's not going to give you what it is that you need. He's withholding that from you. What kind of God is he? Maybe he isn't who he claimed he is. And all through this time, Eve's standing there looking at the tree. Going from believing God to doubting. To questioning in her mind, what's God's purpose for the command about not eating from the tree? Now, the truth is, she didn't have to accept or revel in the evil thoughts or desires that the tempter planted in her mind. She chose to. She chose to believe the unthinkable. That all this God wanting her to have this wonderfully blessed life in the garden was just perhaps a way to control her. To keep her from getting what she thought she needed. Wisdom. To be like God. And so in verse 6 we see the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. She wanted the wisdom it would give her. She was hooked. She had looked longingly enough at the tree, allowing her for her selfish desires to grow within her with each longing look and she could only see the devil's promise hanging there on the branch. She could be like God, having her eyes open to the knowledge of good and evil. Now we must wonder, where in the world was Adam in all of this? Couldn't he have been there to talk some sense into her? Well, continuing with verse 6, we read, So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it too. And so Adam had been standing right there next to Eve. And so he too 
had fallen to the tempter's tactics. Continuing with verse 7, we read, At that moment their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness, so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. There was no going back. Their eyes had been opened. Adam and Eve chose their course of action, and the result was death. Not immediate physical death. That would come in time. Adam and Eve experienced spiritual death. The result of sin, the Bible says, is death. The wages of sin is death. So Adam and Eve in their spiritual death felt guilt for the first time, and so they hid from God. Now I think about this in the concept of an 18-month-old, or an 18-month-old, and you know how they cover their eyes and they think that they're hiding? Well, that's kind of what it was like with Adam and Eve. Because how in the world do you hide from an omniscient, omnipotent, always-present God? How do you hide from God? God saw them. He knew what they had done. Adam and Eve chose their course of action. They brought sin into the world, and God had no choice but to respond. God could not be holy and ignore their disobedience to his command. He couldn't let sin go unpunished. And so each of the parties, Eve, Adam, and the serpent, suffered consequences of their sin. Turning to our companion book, author Turner writes this. He says, in that moment, the whole world started to come unraveled. The hook was set, and they swallowed the bait, and nothing would ever be the same again. Sin, which before only existed in theory, was now a reality. Unfortunately, our first parents failed to value God's word and chose to go their own way, not satisfied to be dependent on God's guidance, for they chose to rebel. This decision to set in motion a chain of events has led to despair, anxiety, misery, and agony ever since. Work was now hard and frustrating. Childbirth was painful. Their relationship was strained. Warning, do not eat the fruit of this tree. If you do, you will die. Such an odd warning. Apparently God has reasons for posting it. God gave the command to Adam to not eat the fruit from just that tree. Just that tree. Everything else was available to them. Every fruit, enjoyable labor, fellowship with God. Just not that tree. See, God's command was a test. God was testing their faith, allowing Adam and Eve to potentially grow in their faith in him. James chapter 1, verse 3 says, For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. The tree was the object of God's moral test. It was placed before Adam and Eve, a conscious, deliberate choice to believe and obey or to disbelieve and disobey the Creator's will. Adam failed. So did Eve. Reading once again from our companion book, Turner writes, 
resulting from just one act of obedience. We have families torn apart by violence and deception, brokenness, frustration, alienation, fear. From that first bite, these have ruled the roost, and no matter how we try, we cannot rid ourselves of this awful hook that's set deeply in our hearts and minds, corrupting absolutely everything. Sin entered the world and had devastating effects. So let's take a few moments, and we're just going to briefly explain sin. Translated from the Hebrew word, sin means missing the mark. Falling short of God's glorious standard is how a translation puts it. Sin is disobedience and desire to exalt self. Thinking that no one knows what is better for oneself than God does. Or, yeah, that knowing that what is better for us in our minds is, is different than what God would want for us. A rejecting of the warning that God puts forth and, and our choosing to go our own way. Sin is missing the mark. Now, there are two classifications of sin, though. The first is original sin, and that's obviously what we're presenting with Adam and Eve. Original set, sin set into motion by them, resulting in the entire human race being affected by sin. All of humanity has inherited the sin nature. The second classification is personal sin. Personal sins are the individual sins, the individual acts that we commit, the wrong that we do. Chuck Swindoll unpacks this truth about sin, the original and the personal, in just one sentence, and he does a great job, and so I want to show that. He puts it this way. He says, because all have inherited sin nature, the root, we commit sins, the fruit. And so, because we have all come from Adam and Eve, we all have that root system, and our sin is the fruit of that root system. Think that doesn't apply to you? 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says, If we claim to have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. And I will just tag this on to it as well, Proverbs 16, 18. It says pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before the fall. I'll just leave it there. So if we all sin, do we just throw up our hands and keep sinning? Of course, Paul addressed that in Romans, and you can read on that on your own. We won't go there this morning. But the answer to that is, of course not. We don't keep sinning. Some of you know that my birth order was three out of four. Got two older sisters, one younger sister, and and a lot of times people think that that's a tough place to be, number three out of four. Well, I think they base that on because the oldest child, of course, is the one that's just doted on because they're the first. It's all concentrated. Mom and dad don't have any other distractions as far as their kids. And, and they're always the one, of course, the first child that's got their photo all over in the family album. And then child number two comes along and we start to see it wane a little bit, but the second child's very prevalent yet too. And then the third one comes along and well, 
life just happens. And for those of you who know that if there's a baby in the family, which there always is, they're the one who steals the show anyway. So then that leaves the third child just kind of there, okay? Yeah, the violins have now come out for Pastor Lisa um, from the section of the parents. Anyway, so in that, though, frankly, I liked being third. I liked being third. Because I got to watch my older sisters, and I observed what they did. And I learned what to do and what not to do. Because if they did wrong, I'm like, I'm not going to do that. That had bad consequences. And so I was very observant. Now, if you talk to my parents at the end of service today, they will tell you to this day that I was the easiest one to raise. Just saying. It's true. So, the beautiful thing is <laughs> that learning from others has worked quite well for me. I've liked it. And I continue to apply this concept to my life today. And so when I read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, I get really excited because here's what it says. It says, these things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. And I love how Eugene Peterson puts it in the message because he writes it this way, and I'm going to add uh, verse 12 onto it. He says, these are all warning markers, danger, in our history books written down so that we don't repeat their mistakes. Our positions in the story are parallel. They are at the beginning, we at the end, and we are just as capable of messing it up as they were. Don't be naive and self-confident. You're not exempt. You could fall flat on your face as easily as anyone else. Forget about self-confidence. It's useless. Cultivate God-confidence. And so in light of that truth, what can we learn from Eve's experience since we too are just as capable of messing it up as they were? How can we cultivate God-confidence and heed his warnings? Let me start with saying this. It's been observed that sin disregards three things. The, will of, or the word of God, the will of God, and the glory of God. That's worth repeating. Sin disregards the word of God, the will of God, and the glory of God. And so we're going to apply that observation in order to cultivate God's God confidence. And so we're going to look at these three key things and see how we can use that to heed God's warnings. The first one is know what God said. Know what God said. For whatever reason, Eve did not restate God's spoken word of instruction to them in regards to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Had she wielded the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, had she done that, she could have effectively rebuked her adversary right there. We know that that works because Jesus used that when he was tempted. 
How do we then know what God said? By reading his word. The Bible. But of course it's more than just reading it. It's also believing it and obeying it. God guided the authors of scripture to write down how he interacted with humanity throughout history to teach us, to warn us of danger. And we would do well to remember that all God's commands are meant for our benefit, even if we don't fully understand the reasons behind them. And so we gain confidence to stand against temptation, no matter what the source, when we know God's instructions and his commands, which are recorded for us in the Bible. They can be a firm foundation of truth to stand on. Knowing the word of God is how we destroy speculations and every lofty thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. And we can take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Believe and obey the word of God. Know what God said. Secondly, we seek the will of God. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 say, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will to, in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God. We don't know why Eve didn't call out to God when the serpent came up to her. She could have asked God for clarification. She could have asked for help to understand what his warning was, what he had said about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Instead, she relied on her own understanding. And we know that it had disastrous results. Along with reading the word of God, we gain understanding of God's will through prayer. The Holy Spirit directs us. He counsels us. He shows us the way to keep us on the path. Prayer is our connection with God. No matter what time of day, no matter what time of night, no matter what the situation is, God is available to us through prayer to reveal his will to us. He wants to spend time in conversation with us, and that is what prayer is, spending time in conversation with God. What a privilege that we have. We don't have to lean on our own understanding. God will show us his will through prayer. Seek and know his will. It helps us guard against sin and temptation. Third, glorify God. Psalm 34, 1 says, I will praise the Lord at all times. I will constantly speak his praises. Eve allowed the, servant, the serpent to, to plant seeds of doubt in her mind. Doubt about God's goodness to her, about his trustworthiness, about his faithfulness. How in the world did she forget his benefits? She lived in a perfect place where there was pleasure, there was abundance, there was perfect fellowship with her husband and with her God. And I believe, though, that it is impossible to, to truly be praising God and forget who he is, that he's our creator, that he's a great and awesome Lord. We can't praise him and doubt his goodness at the same time. 
We cannot give glory to him and at the same moment forget who he is and all that he has done. Glorifying God reminds us of who he is and what he's done and his great love for us. Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Say, then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve. Up to then, she was just referred to as the woman. Because she would be the mother of all who lived. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. It's been observed that all God's dealings with people as sinners can be traced back to this act of disobedience by Adam and Eve. God is a saving God. And the fact that he has clothed Adam and Eve testifies to that. An animal was sacrificed to provide garments of skins, the skin of which God clothed Adam and Eve, perpetually reminded them of God's provision. Similarly, in the fullness of time, God accepted the sacrifice of Christ and on that basis of that atonement he clothes believers in righteousness. God provided a covering and he provides a covering for us. The righteousness of Christ covers our sin and our shame. It does not remove the consequences but it does the guilt. And he clothes us in his righteousness of Christ when we accept what Christ did on the cross for us. Remembering his wonderful visions and promises for us will lead us into worship and glorifying him will protect us from doubting his goodness and from falling into sin. To be able to heed God's warning. As we know the word of God, as we seek to be in his will, as we give him the glory, he will give us God confidence to resist temptation and falling into sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says, No test or temptation that comes your way is beyond the course of what others have had to face. All you need to remember is that God will never let you down. He will never let you be pushed past your limit. He'll always be there to help you come through it. Satan used a number of tactics with Eve. Temptation, lies, deception. And he still uses those same tactics today. Why? Because they still work. Scripture tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Stay alert. Look out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. As followers of Jesus, we've been given the Holy Spirit of God to help us to navigate life on earth. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And so he will be faithful to help us to heed the warnings. Our part is to know his word, to know his will, and to give him the glory and, of course, knowing his word and knowing his will means believing it and obeying it. My question to you this morning as we wrap this up, is there an area 
of those three things that we can do to guard ourselves against failing when God sends us a warning through his word or through prayer? Is there an area that you have been neglecting? Are you in the word of God? Are you in prayer? Are you truly glorifying God? I don't want you to be vulnerable to temptation. And so as we do those three things, our spirit is sensitive to God's warnings. And so if there's an area in your life that you know I am not where I need to be in that area, and we can all be growing and we all should be growing and that's good, but if there's a specific area that you're neglecting that is opening you up to sin and failing to heed God's warning, would you take this time this morning as we close in prayer and just commit that you're going to ask God to help you to work on that area in your life. He will help you to do that, to grow stronger, because he wants our faith to grow. And then, of course, sometimes in, we can say that in our minds, but sometimes it takes a physical action to help us to really solidify that. And maybe that's how you are this morning. And so if that's you, as I close in prayer, I just want you to not only whisper that in your heart, but I also want you to just raise your hand. As You know, you probably see me in worship raising my hand. The reason I do that is that's an act of surrender. That's an acknowledgement that, that God is by far bigger and greater than I ever will be. And that's a, that's a comforting thing to me, honestly. And so it's an act of surrender. And sometimes we just need to do that when we decide, God, I need your help to change something in me. I can't do it on my own. I want that area to change and to grow. And so you just raise your hand as I close in prayer as an act of surrender to God. We're also going to have prayer available after service this morning. And maybe you want to solidify that in prayer with the prayer team. That's what they're here for is they want to come alongside and partner with you in prayer. Or maybe you came in this morning with something else on your heart. We don't want you to leave without bringing that to God in prayer. And so if you just close your eyes with me this morning. The Lord desires that we would continue to grow in God confidence. Knowing his word and believing that it's true that we can know what he said, along with knowing his will as we spend time in prayer, as well as guarding ourselves against the enemy's deceptive ways and in causing us to doubt. If we glorify God, we can't doubt his goodness. And so we want to constantly be in worship to God as well. And so, God, I just borrow these words in prayer from our companion book. And I would ask that you would grant us wisdom from your word and the desire to renew our mind in your timeless truth. Then we will walk in the way of life-giving trust and dependence. And then we will learn the blessings of obedience to what you proclaim for our good. And God, as we do that, we know you to be faithful. We know that you'll give us God confidence to heed your warnings for our glory and our benefit. And so, Lord, whatever areas that people want to grow in today, Lord, would you just bless them in that? Would you empower them to be able to stay strong and to learn and to grow so that they can increase their faith and be able to stand against the enemy's 
temptations. God, we just praise you this morning for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for your word, Lord, power to transform us. May you be glorified, Lord, as we apply this teaching to our lives. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.